Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dominic Salas, aka Mr. Salas Teaches English. Dominic is a former teacher, current consultant on teaching and learning, published author, and YouTuber. In the interview, we discuss an introduction to his early career, all the way up to his dabbles with YouTube, the evolution of his channel and the success he's had with it, plans with regard to maintaining this part of his career in the future, as well as advice on seeking alternative revenue streams whilst teaching. Many thanks again to Dominic for giving up his time to give me some thorough advice on what has been a long-term ambition of mine. You can find the different resources or media mentioned in the show in the notes below. Okay, Dominic, um, with the lovely sound of year six leaving the building behind me, uh, would you mind giving us a brief introduction to your career to date, ranging from um, your roles as a teacher, a leader, a YouTuber, and uh, also an author? Right. Um, well, I, I started teaching late, um, so it was a vocation, if you, if you like. I started out as a tax inspector, um, graduate recruitment plan, um, you know, lots of promotion, lots of exams. And the more I got promoted, the more I hated what I was doing. And my wife was teaching. Now, I'd socialize with her every Friday and the teachers she was with. And uh, she said, you know what, I'm just going to move on. My head of department is killing me. I'm going to move on to another school. And at the same time, I decided to teach. Uh, so I just walked into her old job and there was this extraordinary, uh, very brief lived incentive called um, the licensed teacher program. And so I was able to train on the job without any qualifications. The head teacher just liked me because <laughs> we got on well. And he said, yeah, 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 come to my school and teach. And so I kind of trained myself before the local authority worked out what was going on and, and like put some training in. But by that stage, it was too late. So I was uh, asked to go and train with other teachers on a kind of PGCE program. But I was already months ahead of them because I was teaching full time, uh, but for, you know, an afternoon out or a day out. Um, And it was just a fabulous training because I knew that I knew nothing. And therefore, everything I did in the classroom was an experiment, which gave me feedback about whether I could teach or not. Um, so that approach of assuming that I know nothing has just been totally revelatory for me. And it makes me very different from most teachers who I who kind of have passionate beliefs about stuff and are really reluctant to let go of them, whereas I knew all my beliefs were potentially rubbish. And so I only ever looked at the evidence uh, and I only ever wanted to be a kind of Mr. Chips sort of figure. You know, I was going to, this is my school. We moved next door to it. I'm still a 100 metres away from that school. And I taught there for 10 years. Because I was 28, there was like no way I was going for a promotion. I was already behind the curve. Uh, and so I just got obsessed with teaching English um, and perfected my craft, really, I guess. And then 
eight years in, we got a new head teacher who uh, made it very clear within the first day that he didn't want me around. <laughs> and <laughs> it was actually like face-to-face confrontation. Oh, my God. I won't go into like why that happened, but uh, I was kind of a voice uh, as for the for the staff and he didn't like something that we communicated to the governors and he saw me as a troublemaker straight off and my card was marked um and he also came in and started doing loads of things to the school which i found uncomfortable and so i gave it two years and then hated the person i was becoming and moved and uh, honestly it was like a bereavement i can't describe how awful it was leaving somewhere you loved and that's where i envisage spending my whole career uh, so i went uh, for promotion because if you're going to move you might as well get promoted uh, to a catholic school which i thought would be a really moral upstanding institution and it was the <laughs> complete opposite the man <laughs> who ran it was i mean he's still famous and i left there in 2000 and one I think I mean it was just terrible uh and so after two terms there I thought I just can't teach I don't know what I'm doing I quit I had no job to go to and I was going to retrain as a carpenter um meanwhile my wife was head of English at another school and had always refused to have me anywhere near her department (laughs) (laughs) but but back in those days there was an actual teacher shortage I know that's hard to believe She'd advertised three times, lovely school, couldn't get anyone. And so she turned to me in desperation and said, what a shame. Well, I'll even have you. <laughs> so, so I rocked up and it was just the most magical experience. So I know, like you teach abroad, this was like going to another country. They only taught four lessons a day. Each lesson was an hour and 10 minutes. So if you had a free, you had an hour and 10 minutes of preparation time. There was no stress. Uh, behavior was great, and you could just teach, and it was like the best year of my life, teaching career-wise. My next thing was 2009, the first data educational data book came out, Visible Learning by Professor John Hattie. So that was like research revolution. Before that, experts wrote their opinions. You liked their book. You did, you know, Michael Marland discipline and behavior in the classroom, that sort of thing. And suddenly he came out and he said, look, I think at that stage, there are 127 interventions, things that schools can do. This is how well they work and don't work. And that that was like rocket fuel to me. It was just like, my God, there's actually a body of evidence out there which tells us what works and what doesn't. And the mantra that he's got going through this book is – know thy impact so in other words look for the evidence so yeah you you're adopting feedback as a policy and we know that that's got a massive impact but actually you might implement it in a way which is rubbish so mm-hmm. you have to monitor the impact in your school and that was just brilliant because i could set up lots of little experiments and find out what worked um and often like the evidence of our own eyes would be, ah, oh, it's not working, it's a disaster. You do your assessments, oh, Christ, this has really worked. <laughs> and that was another step change in my thinking. So, um, so like as a head of English, you might 
be able to identify with this experience. I hope not. But our senior leadership team said, right, um, we're going to have to accelerate key stage three into two years. And in those days, they did SATs at the end of year nine. You're going to have to do it. You have to get them ready for SATs at the end of year eight because we've got a competitor that's doing it. We're losing kids. And then, okay, right, okay, we'll reorganize the curriculum, see if that's possible. And then the next week, it was like, well, I might be exaggerating the time scale. Yeah, <laughs> and you're going to have to teach in mixed ability classes because the timetabler, timetables, year seven last, and then it's just, we can't set. Everyone's in tutor groups. And it's like, yeah, all right, so it's mixed ability teaching as well. All right, we'll see what we can do. And then the same timetabler um, can't actually timetable you with your classes. So half your classes get one teacher. but Oh, my days. A quarter get two teachers. Another quarter get three teachers. And I'm like, do I toys out of the pram moment? <laughs> you know? Have you got any left? And yeah. so... So, well, okay, well, what does the evidence say? So I go to the evidence. I said, well, the evidence says mixed ability teaching it works. Yeah, right? that's okay. fine. Mm. Uh, and then it says peer teaching works. And so the effects of having a peer teach you, like a kid in your own class, potentially, is three times greater than having a degree in your subject, even in maths. And so I, my mind just explodes. So my degree counts for almost nothing in terms of how, what my kids' results will be. But if I get one kid to explain stuff to another kid, they're likely to do better. Mm. Um, so, okay, we're teaching mixed ability. We'll put all our kids in teaching pairs, really able kid in the subject with a less able kid. We'll set up in the curriculum so every lesson – there are these teaching moments where they explain stuff to each other. Um, so we get to the end of um, year seven, and we give them all a year nine SATs paper because my second department was a SATs marker. So I thought, great, we're going to have a standardized assessment. Took her off timetable for the day, and she marked the whole year. And they'd all made a whole level of progress when they were only supposed to make two-thirds, I think. Wow. And then we did it again in year eight, and they'd made the whole year pro, uh, of the whole level of progress. So they all went up by three years' worth of progress on average in the two years. But when I talked to the staff about this and I said, you know, is it working? No, it's awful. We yeah. don't know our classes properly, they're mm. split. You know? um, and I couldn't understand how having split classes would work. So I looked at the data and I, again, went to the evidence. The kids who had one teacher did worse than the kids who had two teachers who did worse than the kids who had three teachers. No way. This was insane. Um, now, I didn't know at that stage why that was. If I'd known why it was, I might have even designed my teaching that way. Um, but I, I knew this was a step too far because we all hated it, including me. Um so later on, I discovered this is because of the space learning and interleaving. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. everybody interleaves. Because the first thing I realized was, you know, if you're doing a Christmas carol and you've suddenly got to swap with someone else, well, you're not going to have them do a Christmas carol. 
because they won't align with you enough. And also, you've got to blooming well liaise with them, and you haven't got the time. So I said, right, okay, well, I'll teach topic X, you teach topic Y. Well, this created ideal gaps in the students' learning. Yeah. So, you know, the forgetting curve sets in. Yeah. Then they come back, and they remember a lot more. Of course, it feels harder, because it is, but the kids just remembered stuff better. Now, I didn't know that at the time, but it's just a fabulous way to organise your curriculum because the, the model that we have in most schools is, or oh, a half term is sort of six weeks, we'll do a six-week unit, we'll have a half term, we'll do another six-week unit. Mm. And all the research says, well, you're an idiot to organise your curriculum that way. Like, why would you do that? Makes no mm. sense. It, it feels great because we know where we are all the time. Mm. But in terms of learning, it's it's rubbish like it's genuinely rubbish but it's the default position in nearly every department in every school in the world and it's just wrong um anyway so this other school that i went to chipping camden absolutely loved it but it was like a, an hour and a quarter away each day travel and we got to outstanding got the ofsted judgment got great results and like Nobody else wanted the Dominic Sales style of let's keep improving. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> come on, like, what, yeah. what are you on about? Um, and I kind of started to stagnate a bit and I thought, geez, I'm getting paid great money to do a job that's now doesn't need doing because the, the school can just tick over, you know. Mm. Um, I could just see my way into retirement or I could – get all this knowledge and conviction that I've got and go and apply it to another school. So at this stage, my head asked me to write a teaching and learning handbook. And I said to him, like, there's no what teachers aren't going to read a teaching. Teachers don't read. Like, <laughs> you know, they're not going to read a teaching and learning handbook. No, 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 it'll be really good. He loved everything documented. So I wrote this handbook. And as I wrote it, I had so much evidence. There was... I, I had loads to say. I had loads. And so this turned into a rather big document, which I gave to him, and it was too big for him to read. He couldn't be asked. Yeah. Like he'd start it, and then obviously everything. But while that happened, I thought, geez, I've, I've got several thousand words here. There's a book in this. So I turned it into a book. I met mm. David Didow. You heard of you Oh, yeah. 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 Big fan. So, yeah. Well, I'm... I'm a big fan, actually, uh, in most ways. Yes, I know I am. <laughs> um, a, I'll tell you the one way I'm not a fan later, because it's important. Please do, yeah. Uh, a great human being, uh, and I bought nearly every one of his books. You know, I, I totally rate the man and what he does. But uh, anyway, he was doing a literacy course through the teaching school, which we were affiliated to. And so I rocked up to that. And um, the course was fascinating in that it, it taught me that it was all again about teaching. And I'd already decided, no, it's all about the curriculum. So the course didn't really give me a way to massively extend literacy. There were some ideas which we could nick, which were good, but didn't really give me a way to massively improve literacy in the school. However, um, 
it did give me a network. And after about four sessions spread over different weeks, I said to him, you know, I've written this book. Um, you got any tips on a publisher? And he said, oh, there's this new publisher, John Catt. Uh, yeah. him. So I send this, I think it's a 130,000-word book off to John Catt, and they write back within an hour and say, yeah, we'd love to publish you. Uh, you've got to get rid of 50% of the words. Like, they'd not even read it. Uh, and that was eye-opening. It was like, yeah, this is a topic. And so the idea was it was uh, using educational research in a sort of common sense way. And I called it the slightly awesome teacher because the idea was you didn't actually have to be a great teacher to get fantastic results. So destroying the myth of being outstanding as a teacher and just if you just do this, you're going to get great results. doesn't matter what your personality is like and, and so forth. So how, how many words was the story, Dominic? It started out as 130,000. So that's like, me- that's like a 400-page, 500-page book then. Yeah, going on, if like 90,000 words is 300 pages. That, that, that's, that's a tome. Yeah, that's yeah. quite a... <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that, yeah, probably. You're right, absolutely right. So yeah. I axed about 50,000 words, I think. I couldn't do the full 50%. Um, and you know, they were right. It made it a better book, uh, published it. And at that stage I had, I think about a thousand Twitter followers. Um, and it gained a little bit of traction, sold reason. They got annoyingly, it got one review in schools week, but never mind. Uh, so, um, it didn't change my life. But I thought at that stage that I was going to go into like teacher training, David Didow style, you know? Yeah, consultancy. Uh, yeah. And so I went down to four days a week, which gave me a day a week to do either YouTube or um, training teachers. Um, so I wrote a guide to the new, the, the exam chains. I wrote a guide for the English language exam and the same publisher published it and, um, and so I thought, oh, I can tie this in with my YouTube channel, make videos and promote the books. I'll do that, you know, see where that leads. Um, and kind of gave up on the teacher training idea. Uh, so I kind of reimagined my role so that I became unemployed, effectively. <laughs> <laughs> so that was back in 2019. And since then, I've just been a gun for hire going into schools and trying to do the same thing for them. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed that. I was going brilliantly till COVID, and then you can't go in. Yeah. Um, so since COVID, that scaled back, and I've gone back to rethink YouTube and, and writing. What, what kind of promoted your first moves into social media? I suppose you said then that you had – you know, the odd day off a week. And I suppose it's a natural progression from teaching to wanting to put revision materials out there and that kind of thing. But um, how did it evolve over time? Did you, was it initially for just the students in your school? Because now for anyone, for for anyone who hasn't seen the channel, you've got nearly 70,000 subscribers. Some of the videos are in the hundreds of thousands. Um, So how did that evolve over time? So 
that started, I think, in 2011. So there was this condescending show on Channel 4 where Jamie Oliver set up a school and oh, got his... Yeah. yeah, do you remember that? And he got yeah. loads of celebrities to come and teach. Oh, you, yeah. you know, you're the uh, TV's greatest historian. You can come and teach history. And I'm the greatest chef. I'll come and teach home economics. And they took loads of kids who I think were at risk of exclusion from other schools. I might not remember that correctly, but they were disadvantaged. And uh, they went along to some sort of country manor and got this teaching. And Channel 4, off the back of that, had this brilliant idea of saying, right, well, what if we could get the best teaching of key concepts? And so they looked at what they thought of as key concepts in each subject. And then they invited people to make a three-minute instructional video teaching that concept so um one of the concepts in english was how to write a literature essay can you explain that in three minutes um the other uh, another one was you know pythagoras theorem can you do that in three minutes and i liked the intellectual challenge of that because i realized i talked too much so there must be an inefficiency in the classroom where my kids aren't learning as much as they should because i'm just spouting right uh so i thought this would be a good discipline for me and so i got the school tiny little video camera and stuck it on a chair on top of the table facing my board and tried to do this video in three minutes and then edited it down and i like there must be christ knows 50 edits like you know <laughs> jump uh-huh. cuts as they're called now in my three minute video so the production value was rubbish but I managed to get this explanation down to three minutes. And I thought that's actually pretty useful, even though it's three minutes long. I think it's actually quite useful. Sent it off. But like there wasn't a proper way of transferring video files in those days. So I set up a YouTube channel. It was the only way I could think of to like host a video that I could then submit. Uh, so that's why I started my YouTube channel. And um, I think I ha- I couldn't set it on a private setting because then I couldn't share it. Or probably I could have done, but I didn't realize this. So I had a video up that anyone could discover. And Channel 4 gave me no feedback on it whatsoever. I, I later found out that I came second in the English category. Oh, wow. But they never, they never notified me. Like, it wasn't a big deal, you know? <laughs> it was like, but I had this channel. Uh, and I'd also entered the maths one. I did the Pythagoras one as well. So just to see if I Keep your options it. open. And, and then I ignored it. I didn't look at it again. And probably like a year later, um, I realized that here was this new AQA exam system. Actually, this wasn't the new one. It was the old one. Um, and I, what I do that most teachers don't do is I sit the exam without looking at the mark scheme. And then I see, right, what marks have I got? And I always lose unexpected marks. And that's because I've only got a degree. I haven't got into the stupid ways that exam questions Uh, try to fit the assessment objectives in. And by sitting the exam, I find out what those stupidities are. Mm. Uh, And so then I was thinking, well, if I can make a three-minute video to explain a concept that's quite complex – what if I could explain the whole exam in like 45 minutes from how to get a grade four all the way up to, well, in those days, C to A star. Yeah. 
And I thought, well, let's try that. And uh, the biggest space we had was the library, which would accommodate half a year group. And so I just got half a year group up at a time and I delivered a lecture style to the class, uh, to the school, and got a kid in front of me. Here's the camera, just film me. And I'll put that on YouTube. You guys can revise from it. So we did this sort of April before the exams. Um, And so one, one is filmed, I think, on 720 resolution, and the other one is like 360, and you can't even see it. <laughs> Those just, are the days. Yeah, I just yeah. whacked them up and said revise from that. And back in those days, there was not a lot on there for kids. So Mr. Bruff was probably the only other English YouTuber, and he he must have had 30,000 subscribers at that stage. I remember when he hit 50, it was a big deal. So it was before that. Um so there was very little out there. And so if you were revising of mice and men or an inspector calls, my video came up. Like it didn't matter that you couldn't see it bigger than a screen that big. Like that was all there was. And they were started to get loads and loads of views. Um, and so I thought, well, what if I could do this with a lot of my teaching? You know, so my theory is that in a lesson, probably kids are actually focused on the learning for about half the lesson tops. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I, I thought a lot of that is because of all the classroom management stuff that you do and the transitions and the divert, you know, someone asks an interesting but irrelevant question and you kind of go with it for a little bit. And so there's a lot of faff. And then there's obviously kids who just aren't interested and disrupt your lesson as well. So um, I thought, what if I could, take my half an hour learning and compress it down to 15 minutes in a video. And then kids who wanted to get ahead or who weren't clear about something, you just watch the video. I'll do that. Mm. Um, so I learned to be much more concise, but also even where I wasn't concise to work out what, what are the key things that are going to make a difference to this kid? So what is it we have to know about inspector calls that's going to take somebody from one grade to the next? You know, can I do a three-minute video on stop being grade five and be grade six? And I discovered that I could. So I'd make these. I used, uh, I still can't remember the name of the program, but they just record the screen. I wouldn't edit it at all. So it was just pause, record, pause, record. And I'd just film the screen. Um, They'd have my mouse with a yellow circle around it going to particular bits. Yeah. Uh, And that was it. But it worked as an instructional video. And amazingly, my own kids were kind of reluctant to watch them. Like, you already teach us, sir. Why do we need to go and watch a video? <laughs> kids in other classes would watch them. Yeah. Uh, and have sort of embarrassed. It wasn't cool to watch. So they'd have embarrassed conversations with me. But because it was on YouTube and I hadn't disabled comments, I'd get kids, you know, saying, oh, this was really helpful. Thank you very much. Um, and in the early days, I got a few teachers as well. Um, interestingly, when I had hardly any subscribers, a few teachers would connect and say, oh, that was great. Can you do a video on bloody blah? And if it was something I was teaching, a video would only take me max half an hour to film and edit and upload. So it wasn't actually that big a deal. 
And so I just trained myself to increasingly start putting videos that my kids would find useful on YouTube. So that gave me the impetus to keep going. So if you go on YouTube, there are lots of English teachers with huge numbers of views for some videos, and then they just stop. Um, so one of the reasons I've got to this many subscribers is I never stopped. Um, so I've got about 1,300 videos, which mm. is, and most of them are rubbish, like no production <laughs> values. You wouldn't watch them now. But at the time, they served a purpose. And, you know, somebody found them useful at some point. So I could keep going. And it didn't take up too much time. What I did for ages then was I kind of ignored my own analytics. Uh, I'm actually kind of obsessed with evidence. So I'm obsessed with the YouTube analytics. Yeah. But it gives me uncomfortable lessons, which I then choose not to learn. And it's only in the last 12 months that I thought, okay, I'm actually going to learn the lessons that it's teaching me. And so um, you can learn how to dramatically grow a YouTube channel starting from scratch. It's not too late. And what I would say is if you've got any female listeners, that is the untapped market on YouTube. So the vast majority of YouTube viewers are male, but the vast majority of YouTube students studying on YouTube are female. All right. Yeah. So if you're teaching GCSE or A-level, um, you've got a female market. So if you are young and female and you're engaging and you're willing to be on camera, there is a huge opportunity. You know, someone could start a channel today and have more subscribers than me in 12 months' time. No problem. Yeah. Um, because that market is out there. So you, you definitely think it's still a kind of, I think I, I would agree with you actually in terms of like finding your niche or finding your, whatever you want to call it in terms of that, that, that audience. Um, because uh, YouTube itself has just changed so much in the last 10 years. I think from what it went to, it was essentially just a, a repository of illegal football videos or illegal kind of <laughs> Simpsons episodes or things like that. And now it's, you know, you've got kids on there, literally kids who are 14, 15, who are millionaires yeah. um, doing doing game walkthroughs and this kind of thing. So that that's really interesting. Yeah, I think if you can tap into a a previously untapped market or just anticipate the fact that new cohorts of students are being, you know, entering secondary school every single year. Um yes. In terms of your approach to it, like at the moment, for anyone who hasn't seen it, you tend to, um, I mean, you've looked at, like you said, an Inspector Calls or Macbeth and the typical text that would come up on um, the, the the given curriculum. Um, how do you plan to sort of move forward? Are you happy just to tailor your output to what AQA or Excel decides are on the exams? Or are you going to go a slightly different direction um yeah i'm i'm well i i experiment so um i'll do i'll try the the different direction at the same time as doing what i'm doing so if you um 
if you go on Google Trends, so this is a search function you can use, um, it will tell you what the most popular searches are for any search terms you put in um, in the world. So you can say, right, I want to break into the American market and I can put into the American market the keywords uh, Shakespeare and Dickens and it will tell me what gets more hits over the last 12 months. Is it? Do you do a Dickens video or do you Shakespeare video? Oh, well, I see. It's Shakespeare. Okay, right. Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, right. In America, more hits for Romeo and Juliet than Macbeth. All right, okay. So if I want to break the American market, I might have to start making Romeo and Juliet videos. The UK market, most people study Macbeth. I'll make Macbeth videos. Um, now, this is why I had no business sense. You know, I started making videos for my kids. Um, but if I want to make money, I make videos at the maximum number of audiences out there. So actually, I'd be better off making Jane Austen videos because Jane Austen is someone who's really loved across the world. And people who love Jane Austen are highly educated or want to be, and they'll watch a lot of that video. Whereas if I make a Macbeth video, I've got 15, 16-year-olds who are watching that video the night before the exam, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so I don't have massive watch time. And if YouTube rewards watch time above all else. Yeah, so if you've got a video which people watch a lot of, they promote that video. Um, uh, so if you if you, if you look online, you know, and you look for uh, Mr. Darcy or something, you'll get somebody sitting in their bedroom chatting away about Mr. Darcy, and they've got I don't know a thousand subscribers, but they've got a hundred thousand views because this is something that people are interested in across the world. Yeah, so, it's crazy. Yeah. So if I were if I were thinking, right, I'm just going to do English stuff, I would start thinking more about, you know, well, let's find out what the market's interested in, and I, then I'll make those videos. There was um, – I, I sort of follow a few fitness people on um, YouTube, and they um, – I was listening to an interview with one of them, and he said that – he was releasing, you know, the, the, a couple of kind of like challenge videos and this kind of thing. How many of a certain exercise can you do and all this? And one day he just decided to do a an army training video. So the, the typical induction program that you would be expected to get into the U.S. military. And it yeah. exploded. It got like 18 yeah. million views. Wow. And he just, and he looked at that. And he was, you know, he's someone who gets like half a million or a million anyway, but he couldn't quite figure out why. And he looked at the analytics and everyone was in the States. So it's just obviously kids, young men, young women who want to join the army and thought, okay, well, what's it all about? Have I got what it takes, so to speak? So that that's a really interesting point. I'd never heard of that before in terms of like looking at the trends with yeah. regard to like what, what America um, is searching for. Have you also, you've kind of, from what I've seen on your channel, you've, you've tried to branch out to collaborations a little bit as well. I watched one of your videos, which was talking about maybe, I think it was five English teachers that yes. people yeah, might yeah. not be aware of. And, and there was an, an interview with, 
um, another English teacher, which is called Jen Chan or something like That's that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Jen Chen. Yeah. Yeah. What's the um, what's the what's the thinking behind the the, the cal- collaboration approach? So, the YouTube algorithm is quite sophisticated in feeding you videos that you it thinks you might want to watch, and so. Jen must have made a video on a topic that I'd posted on. Yeah. Um, and she had 80 subscribers or something, but it still turned up on my homepage. And I watched it and I thought, Jesus, she's really thought about the editing of this. This is like light years ahead of the videos I first started making, you know, and it's and in many ways is better than the videos I'm making now. And she's only got 80 subscribers. Um, so I thought, well, what if I could promote her channel? like help her grow because the hardest thing on YouTube is, is the grind because to get to your 1000 subscribers normally takes on average a hundred videos. Yeah. And you don't get any money till you get to a a thousand subscribers. And so it's hard to keep going, especially in the beginning when it's really hard to learn, you know, the camera stuff, the editing stuff. And anyway, here she was, um, and she was an Oxford graduate with a first in English who um, who didn't have like a really confident screen presence yet, obviously, because she was just starting. Um, but she was producing stuff that other people weren't that aligned with the reasons I make videos, which is let's get the kids top grades. Mm. Anybody, it's just knowledge, you know, an average kid can get top grades. If they just take the time to learn the knowledge. That, yeah. That's my philosophy. And so she was doing the same thing, uh, but she also scripted her videos, which I, that takes work and I don't do it, but I should. And so I thought, oh, actually, I can learn <laughs> this bloody YouTuber who's only got 80 subscribers. I'm going to learn yeah. from this person. Yeah. Um, and so um, I must have commented on her videos, give her a bit of support. And then she commented back and, uh, and I said, look, I'm going to promote your channel. Uh, but I'm going to wait till January because we thought exams were still going on. I'll wait till January. That's when kids start revising on YouTube. I see. And I'll promote you then. Of course, exams were cancelled, but I, I thought oh, I'll promote you anyway. Uh, so then I made that video. And since then, we've done this together as well. And uh, I've got to get round to editing it. So um, we've done a kind of 10... 10 things that will make you successful at literature video. And she's done, she's already edited it and put a few up on her channel. And she's now up to around 600 subscribers. Yeah. I was going to say, the first time I looked, she was on a hundred and I looked back a few days later and it had jumped. Yeah. And there there was a big jump when my video came out and it it Mm. hasn't had that many views. It's only had, a, I think it's only had about 2000 views that one, but, um, that still blows my mind that 2000 people would be, you know, it, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's still quite a, like a crazy number to me that 2000 people would stop by. Yeah. It's, but I suppose you can get caught up in chasing a certain amount of views. Um, yeah. Which I, I, I don't do that because it's not a business, you know, so it, it doesn't matter if nobody watches a video I put out, you know, right. uh, it'll find it's all the other, the other way to think about YouTube is, um, 
it's the best feedback engine in the universe. Uh-huh. So when you're in a classroom, uh, you have no idea really whether what you have taught is going to stick. You genuinely no idea whatsoever. And you can come out of the room. You'll see it when you watch people, you know, if you do interview lessons and stuff, you come out of the room and you'll have one perception and they will have a totally different perception of the lesson. You could both be wrong. But my point is, it's really, really hard to work out what the impact is on the kids. But with YouTube, you can find out the impact immediately. Like as soon as there's a few hundred people who've watched that video, you now have a big enough sample size to get really reliable data about what works in your video and what's rubbish. So I I, I certainly will be watching with quite a, a large amount of interest to see like what sort of stuff you put up and that kind of thing. And um yeah, thanks, thanks so much for all the advice in terms of um how to initially how to rub people up the wrong way in management but more importantly how to kind of approach um youtube and kind of social analytics and all stuff like that it was absolutely fascinating so thanks very much dominic no problem (laughs) see you see you soon somewhere cheers